Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Political satirist and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist P.J. O'Rourke trains his eye on his own generation in his new book, The Baby Boom, How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again. O'Rourke writes, yes, we're spoiled rotten. We're self-absorbed. It seems like we'll never shut up. But the baby boomers made a better world for everyone else. You're welcome. P.J. O'Rourke's books include Don't Vote, Give War a Chance, Eat the Rich, the CEO of the Sofa, and many others. Both Time and Wall Street Journal have called him the funniest writer in America. He frequently appears on television and, as I mentioned, is a regular panelist on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. He's written for such diverse publications as Automobile, Weekly Standard, Atlantic Monthly, New York Times Book Review. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me says he's known as a hard-bitten, cigar-smoking conservative, but in fact he bashes all political persuasions. He was editor-in-chief of National Lampoon from 1978 to 1981, international affairs correspondent for Rolling Stone from 85 to 2001. P.J. O'Rourke and the Baby Boom on the program today. P.J. O'Rourke, uh, it's a pleasure to welcome you in to Access Utah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm very glad to be there. And Well, I wish I were there, actually. We're getting about <laughs> 10 inches. We're snowed in up where I live in New Hampshire. It's just light snow here, so yeah, it might be better to be here. Also, you have, um, um, i got to say, you, you have somewhat superior skiing to what we do. Well, it, we call it the greatest snow on earth. It's on our license plate, so it, it must be true. Ah! Yeah. On our license plate, it says, live free or die. <laughs> I've, always, I've always wondered, uh, driving around with people that have that slogan on their license plate, it, it, it you, would make me feel unsafe. You get used to it, but yeah, it is a little. You know, when you when you move from someplace that has like something like land of cheese, you know, <laughs> yes. uh, to a state that like really puts it out there on their license plate, you know, and you just hope that that isn't an indication of uh, of uh, uh, how they're going to behave in traffic. Mm. So you 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 chose New Hampshire. I guess you could have lived anywhere. Uh, yes, I did. I, I had a, 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 a summer place. I was living in New York years ago, and I had a summer place up here because I had an old friend from college. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And then when I became a freelancer uh, back in the 80s, my tax guy in New York City said, you are just a moron if you don't change your residence to, uh, to New Hampshire. And here I've been ever since. Hmm. Um, uh, we'll, of course, talk about the baby boom. Very interesting and uh, loved a lot of the stories in the book. Uh, but, uh, of course, uh, NPR listeners will, if they're not familiar with your other works, they probably are, they will definitely be familiar with your work on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Yes, which, which show, i got to say, I just absolutely love. It's been, I've been on there for a long time. So long, I can, when I first went on, we were still, um, uh, we were still treading very carefully. It was, it was close enough to um, um, the, you know, it was shortly after 9/11, and we were still wondering how we could ever be funny again. So, uh, but I guess you find that those first few shows after after 9/11, how did you navigate that? Well, fortunately, I didn't come in for a couple of months yet, but I, I understand the stories were very difficult. And uh, fortunately, there are, there is enough human folly in the world. I mean, the the core of, uh, of of wait wait don't tell me is human folly in the news, and uh, as opposed to human evil in the news. And fortunately, there are enough s- stupid criminals and. Uh, uh, and other such stories, stupid criminals being one of our core uh, sources, uh, that uh, we were able to thread our way through. Now, it's become very popular, but I, I 
I can imagine the pitch, and I don't know if whether I would have authorized it. Do we're going to do a funny show based on the news? It's going to be a news quiz. Yes, I mean it was a little out of character for uh, NPR, but it was during a period where I think they were trying to build a uh, different weekend sort of tone, and they'd already had quite quite a success with uh, with Click and Clack with the Tappet Brothers and a show that you wouldn't right offhand think of as an NPR show. And so they went to the same producer, Doug Berman, uh, for the idea of, uh, of the quiz show. So how did you come to be on the show? Well, good question. Uh, I, yeah, I bumped into uh, the, the original producer of the show, a guy named Rod, Rod Abid, and I bumped into him in a restaurant in Macedonia. It was during the Kosovo um, kerfluffle, and Rod was uh, an overseas uh, NPR producer whom I knew from the war in Lebanon and the Iraq war and a number of other of the uh, experiences we'd shared, somewhat unpleasant experiences we'd shared. And uh, Rod said, I've, I've had it with this. And I said, yeah, me too. You know, and I got kids and stuff. I really don't want to keep covering this garbage. And um, he said, there's an idea for a show at NPR. Um, we're gonna do it. W- would you be interested in being involved? And I said, sure. You know, and he told me a little bit about it. And I didn't hear from him for quite a while. And then one day I got a call. And he said, you want to be on the panel? So what was it like, first few panels? Well, in those days, we were doing this in the strangest way. Uh, Peter Sagal and, and Carl Castle uh, and the staff uh, uh, were all in Chicago. And the panelists would phone in from, um, um, from different NPR, from their local NPR station. So we had to do this all on the blind. And, of course, that's very difficult because you can't give people physical cues as to who's going to talk next, and you have to learn not to talk over the top of each other. And uh, for, so for quite a while, the show was done by radio connection. And then they started to do some live shows, uh, and they realized that the live shows worked a lot better because the panelists could see each other, and all the panelists could see Peter and Carl. And you know there was just a more energy, and the whole thing worked more smoothly. And so they went. Now uh, uh, the shows are all done live, uh, either from Chicago or on the road. And that, of course, has meant that there are a lot more panelists because in order to get three panelists to travel to Utah, um, uh, I don't know if they've done a show out there. The, they they have. Live, so. I believe they have. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't there myself. But anyway, in order to get at any given moment three of the panelists to go to wherever the show is being done, even if it's just Chicago, um, now requires uh, about 20 different panelists in rotation, where I I think there were about half a dozen of us at first. Each of us would do it every other week or sometimes every week. I imagine there'd be there'd be a little bit of pressure, but of course, if you're if you're known as a funny guy, there I guess there's always pressure in the public life. But you're asked to come on and be funny. Here's the secret to, um, uh, uh, and only your listeners will know: we tape for a long time. Uh, we tape for about two hours. Therefore, uh, all the uh, I got nothing there, you know, <laughs> or. Uh, all the really stupid jokes, the somewhat inappropriate jokes, uh, the jokes that aren't jokes at all, the ums, the ahs, the long pauses, um, and the and the muffs, um, get edited out. Hmm. 
it's it, it's kind of it's kind of funny. I've I've talked with the Peter Sagal about this. Um, Carl Castle has has reached kind of this cult status among NPR listeners. He, he long time very serious newsman, but apparently funny, yes. funny in private life, and now he's able to show that side. Yes, and of course that was the whole idea of the show. Was the the original idea of the show was Carl Castle. I mean, that, that it was like a two-word pitch for the show. It's like funny news quiz, Carl Castle, because Carl Castle has got that serious radio guy voice like nobody has ever had it. And they just thought that intrinsically the idea of a funny news quiz show with Carl Castle as the moderator, that just the tension between those two things would work, and it does. Yeah, it certainly does. Do you have uh, favorite moments from the show, favorite guests you've interacted with? Well, actually, my favorite moments for the, uh, from the show are the things that don't usually get on the show as the readers hear them. Like, we'll get these guests, I'll name no names, but there was a California congressman <laughs> who just won't shut up, who simply won't shut up, and who aren't funny. And it's like, it, it's like the most amazing agony. We got this California congressman on, and he wanted to talk about minutia of legislation, specifically the wonderful minutia of, of, of fabulous legislation that he had been instrumental in that all had to do with, like, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, you know, uh, managing um, 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 patent law reform or something like that. You know? And we're going, get this guy off, you know. And the audience is dozing off, you know. And we're trying to inject jokes. We're trying to get him to go with the spirit of the thing. No dice. We had another uh, thing. We had a musician, a well-known musician, again, no names will be named, who was just a potty mouth. And, like, really, and not an amusing potty mouth, but just a potty mouth potty mouth. And we couldn't get him to shut up or say anything we could put on the radio. And that was the only time I've actually seen Peter get mad at a guest. It's, it was, so it's a good thing you're you're taping two hours worth or something. It's, no yeah. kidding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking with P.J. O'Rourke, and we've uh, begun the program talking about Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. That's where I think public radio listeners will uh, will know P.J. O'Rourke. Of course, uh, most of us would, would know the, the books and, uh, and uh, P.J. O'Rourke's uh, career, political satirist, and uh, uh, frequently appears on television, many books. Uh, including Don't Vote, uh, Parliament of Horrors, Give War a Chance, Eat the Rich, and the latest is uh, The Baby Boom, How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again. Uh, We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we'll uh, get into talking about The Baby Boom Generation, and uh, this is, in a way, a memoir as well. There's there's a lot of P.J. O'Rourke in this book, some interesting experiences going to talking about that uh, following the break. By the way, you're welcome to join this conversation at 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxis at gmail.com, and you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. More following break. 
Utah Public Radio wants you to design the next UPR mug. Draw, paint, or photograph your way to the top design as voted on by UPR listeners. What could be more cool than having your artistic creation enshrined forever on the side of a public radio mug? Simply create a design that reflects your interpretation or appreciation of UPR. The new entry deadline is Monday, February 10th. For ideas or for more information, just go to upr.org. And programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread. At 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering honey crumb granola, cinnamon monkey bread, and vegetarian quiche. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have as our guest for the hour, political satirist and author P.J. O'Rourke who trains his eye on his own generation in his new book, The Baby Boom, How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again. O'Rourke writes, yes, we're spoiled rotten, we're self-absorbed, seems like we'll never shut up, but the boomers made it better, a better world for everyone else. You're welcome. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke's uh, books include Don't Vote, Give War a Chance, Eat the Rich, CEO of the Sofa, and uh, many others. And he's written for such diverse publications as Automobile, New York Times Book Review, Rolling Stone, Atlantic Monthly. And, of course, he's a panelist on uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. P.G. O'Rourke, um, uh, I wonder what the impetus was. What's your, what was your goal here? You, you uh, mix uh, several things together. You, you say in your preface that uh, this isn't meant to be a scientific treatise. Um, you're, you're not going to have any sentences that start with studies show, and you, you mix a lot of your own experiences uh, in. What are you trying to do in the book? Well, uh, good question, <laughs> and a fair question, as uh, as people always say when they don't know the answer to a question. Uh, the I, I, I think what set me off was the, the realization that in, in in this year, 2014, the youngest members of a generation that decided to stay young forever, the youngest members are turning 50. And so, you know, we the the question of what are we going to be when we grow up which is still a, an active question, I think, for many baby boomers. Um, um, it, it, maybe it's time we tried to answer that a little bit. And so I thought, you know, this is, this is a good time to look back. Um, whatever this generation is going to become, it probably has become. And also there's the interesting fact to me that, uh, uh, you know, in business and politics and, and, and even and to a lesser extent in culture, it is people over 50 who hold the levers of power. Uh, they certainly hold the levers of pen over the checkbook. Uh, anything happens in the world, somebody, uh, somebody over 50 has probably signed off on it, you know, and whether you, it's the president of the United States or the president of GM or whatever. And you mentioned that uh, this is a generation that uh, sort of always seeking to know what it's going to be when it grows up, uh, sort of forever young. You write that in in high school yearbooks, at least in your your class, a lot of people wrote, uh, "Don't ever change." It's kind of a don't ever change. What a strange thing for one eighteen year old to write to another, if you think about it. And yeah, we kind of did our best to um, to keep the eighteen year old mindset. I don't think we've escaped it yet. And uh, and you know, I, I I don't I don't object in a way. I mean. There's a lot of things that could be said about the uh, baby boom that are very critical. Um, we're certainly going to end up costing the nation an awful lot as we go through our Medicare and, and Social Security. But, uh, you know, life has been more fun 
since the baby boom took over. There's just no doubt about that. Uh, if I were to put a date on that, I would say it would be 1965 when the when Animal House was released. The world has just been a more fun place than it was before the baby boom took over. Now, we all know fun isn't always pretty. Um, so I'm not saying that the world has been a better place or a more moral place or a more wonderful place, but it's been a more fun place. Hmm. Uh, you also write that this generation, was con- at least growing up, was concerned w- one of the biggest bugaboos was being bored. You can't be bored. We don't want to be bored. No, and we're still that way. You know, I mean, that, that's that's the one thing that the baby boom cannot put up with. When you when you think about uh, our parents and how, how they could sit through like em- endless conferences and endless meetings, and um, uh, in the case of the church that I went to, endless sermons, um, and 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 all sorts of like really boring. Uh, and we just won't do it, you know. I I honestly think, you know, if people people talk about congressional deadlock and and uh, and you know how this political polarization, I really think it has maybe not so much to do with what people actually believe as it has to do with the fact that Congress is dominated by baby boomers, and they would much much rather yell at each other than actually sit down and do the boring work of coming up with a 1,500-page budget agreement. Mm. Uh, the, the name, you say, is problematic. Uh, the lost generation would be cooler. Uh, of course, uh, now, years later, uh, the generation before you has become to be known as the greatest generation. The b- baby boom is, is kind of a problematic name. Yeah, well, it is a little embarrassing. And as a matter of fact, we weren't originally called that. That was a coinage from Time magazine from about 1954. We were originally called War Babies. But I, I guess, you know, our parents are thinking, you know, we're going to send these people through life being called war babies. You know, and so the, 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 the phrase, the baby boom, was, uh, was, was settled upon. And, of course, it was a boom. It was a huge, I mean, there's 75, 76 million of us. And there was a huge explosion of births uh, when, you know, the men came home from overseas right after World War II. started in 1946, kind of. Uh, I think the, the the birth rate peaked in '47. The actual numbers of births peaked in about 1950, and then it gradually tapered off until in in 1964 um, the 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 American birth rate goes below the historical average, and that's the why the technical end of the of the baby boom is 1964. We unlike most generations, there's an actual technical definition to the baby boom. It is a period where American birth rates were higher than long-term historical levels. And so there's an advantage there if you're going to try to define a generation, uh, I suppose. But we're, we've, we've gotten into this. I don't know if we are, we're always this way, but we're, I don't know if you'd call it obsessed, with, with defining generations. You know, you have the baby boom, then the Generation X, Generation Y, Millennials. Yeah, I think that started with the... Uh, with the, I don't think there was a, a much of a feeling for that in, in America before the greatest generation. I mean, you had this generation, although it's somewhat ill-defined exactly who belongs to the greatest generation, but I, I think you had to be sort of of an age to be involved in World War II, not necessarily to fight it, but, I mean, you know, to, 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 to have been um, awake and conscious and, 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 and affected by World War II. And... Um, between the fact that, that 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 generation experienced the Great Depression, followed by World War II, two earth-shattering 
um, uh, events gave them a kind of an identity that maybe the the post-Civil War generation, uh, the, 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 the men who fought in the Civil War, I think, had a very strong... Um, uh, but that'd probably be the be, be the uh, uh, the last generation in American history uh, before the greatest generation to have a, a generational identity, Grand Army of the Republic, and so on. Uh, but but yeah, and so ever since the greatest generation, we've been trying, and then there was the silent generation. Um, who never seemed all that silent to me, <laughs> and then the baby boom, and of course X Y millennials. I was surprised to to learn, uh, and I'm at the tail end of the baby boom. Technically, the baby boomer born '62. Um, I was surprised to learn that that um, certainly among baby boomers, early baby boomers, they didn't consider the generation before them to be the greatest generation. Uh, you know, and I imagine it's it's parents and children that dynamic going on. It was only later on that uh, that I guess baby boomers accepted that this was the greatest generation. Oh, yeah, it definitely took a while. We regarded them as just impossible squares. Uh, and uh, there was, uh, um, uh, although, you know, they were good parents and we had happy childhoods, and usually we still had two parents, uh, which is something that seems to have gone out the window. Um, at, at the time that the baby boom turned adolescent, we were just furious at our parents. We were furious at them about the Vietnam War. We were furious at them just for their their prejudice, for all their squareness, you know, for their opposition to drugs, sex, rock and roll. We just thought they were horrible. And of course, what we didn't realize was that our parents understood what we were going through, and 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 our our parents were much hipper. Uh, than we realized. But I think the tension was between we were the generation, a baby boom generation was the generation that got to act on a lot of the feelings that the greatest generation had. You can't have gone through the Great Depression, you can't have gone through World War II without feeling to a certain degree sort of betrayed by the forces of authority, put to, um, in a lot of danger, put through a lot of hardships by the, by, the man, you know, the, 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 the establishment. And it, we picked up that resentment from our parents, but they, because of the tough times they've been through and because of their desire to, like, make a living and make a life and have a family and so on, we're, we're, we're too cautious to act upon that. We who grew up in a very secure and happy and prosperous environment, um, had the self-confidence to go um, uh, throw a tantrum about about the things we didn't like about America. Well, they didn't have that luxury, I guess. They didn't. They didn't. Mm-hmm. One of the interesting things, I mean, you know, it's a funny book. I mean, it's meant to be a funny book, and, uh, you know, a little nostalgic and funny. But I did do some research for it, too. You know, I was completely uh, just uh, making this up. Uh, it, it, one of the most interesting thing I found about this was had to do with median income, um, the not average income, which can be very skewed by top and bottom, but median income, half of people have, have making more, half making less. Median income for the kids growing up during the baby boom was ten thousand dollars higher 
than the median income for the for greatest generation when they were kids. Ten thousand dollars in inflation adjusted dollars, ten thousand real dollars. We were ten thousand dollars a year richer than our parents. And not only that, but when you look at the median income from um, the greatest generation's period of growing up, it's extremely unstable. It, it, it goes up, it goes down, it goes way up at the end of the 1920s, and then, of course, it goes way down during the Great Depression. When you look at median income in the 40s, 50s, really all the way through to the Arab oil embargo, uh, the period in which the baby boom is growing up, it's a strong, steady growth. A couple tiny little dips, but nothing significant. I mean, it's basically a, 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 a long, optimistic upward slope. So we have the advantage not only of $10,000 more money than our parents had and our families, but we had the advantage of this steady, secure economic optimism. Makes all the difference in the world if you had to see, if you had to put it into into into, into two words uh, the difference between the greatest generation and the baby boom it would be ten thousand hmm. uh, dollars. And so, how would you characterize the, uh, the the baby boom? Of course, it's always dangerous to you know. Well, generalizations, you know. <laughs> of course, are always obnoxious. But then I'm a humorist, so I'm allowed to be obnoxious. I mean, obviously, I, I, I make I'm a very average baby boomer, a median baby boomer, if you will. Uh, my family actually had the median income um, of, of baby boom families. Um, we lived in Toledo, Ohio, uh, a very median city, about a hundred miles from the population center of the United States, um, and, and I had a you know very average upbringing, went to a state college, you know, and so, you know, I take myself, the book is not a memoir, really, but I use memoir aspects because I am so ordinary. It's not about, I mean, I suppose a real memoir is about how I'm different, you know, but my, the memoir parts that I put in here is, I'm the same, you know, there are a lot of people were going through this. So to characterize the baby boom, uh, you know, you take the word self, put a hyphen on it and add about three-quarters of the words of the English language after that hyphen, and you, and you come up with the baby boom. We are a very self, you name it, generation. Self-conscious, self-confident, self-absorbed. Um, you, you, you put the ending on the self. Hmm. Uh, and yet you say this generation is characterized by optimism. Well, it is in a way. I mean, you know, we, we, you wouldn't maybe know that from how we acted during the 60s, but there was a kind of optimism in the, to, to, to the 60s, too. You know, we were going to, it was like we uh, were brought up feeling that we had been born into a perfect world. We got into our teens and realized that, of course, that it was not a perfect world. The world had a lot of injustice had a lot of prejudice, had a lot of all sorts of bad things. Um, and we kind of threw a tantrum about that, specifically about the war in Vietnam. It was an exceedingly imperfect moment. Um, but we were going to create a, if the world wasn't perfect, well, darn it, we were going to create a perfect world, which is, has a lot to do with the ideas of the 60s. Of course, you know, now that we're in our 50s and 60s, we realize that um, uh, there is no such thing as a perfect world. But we're still trying. Mm. 
Uh, we're talking with P.J. O'Rourke on the program today. He's a political satirist, uh, author, appears on television uh, quite a bit, uh, author of uh, many books, and uh, a Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist. His uh, latest book is The Baby Boom, and we're talking about the baby boom generation on the program uh, right now. Uh, we have P.J. O'Rourke with us for the hour, and if you'd like to join the conversation, we uh, hope that you will. 1-800-826-1495. 1-800-826-1495. You can join us too by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. And you can join us on our Utah Public Radio Facebook page. And uh, we're asking you what you think of the baby boom generation. Or uh, perhaps, uh, Colin, characterize your generation if you're uh, not a baby boomer. And uh, what do you think of the baby boomers? Uh, P.J. O'Rourke is with us uh, for the hour. Again, the number is 1-800-826-1495. I'd like to, uh, do you you have your book with you? I do. Uh, Love to have you read a... I I never go anywhere without it. Okay, very good. Uh, Love to have you read a a passage uh, from, uh, I think it's to chapter 15. I have an electronic copy of the book, so I'm not sure if the pages match up. I know. uh, The producer and I were talking about this, and of course they don't match up. Yeah. So this on the electronic version, it's page one seventy nine. It's it's chapter fifteen, and it's you're studying at. Uh, you describe this as an Ivy League wannabe university. I think it's really Johns Hopkins. It's Johns Hopkins. Yes, yes. Um, you, you caught me out. And <laughs> this is the sixties. This was uh, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, and it's uh, <laughs> it's sort of your experiences here. It's sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's uh, you're you're uh, writing for this uh, underground. Magazine, newspaper, called Puddles, and uh, and there there's a lot of kind of the typical in, in here that we think about if we think about you know the '60s. Um, but if you can find it, it, just you know maybe just read a passage from from that chapter, or if you can find it, you talk about Steve Arino Leary being something of a misfit at uh, at Puddles. So for one, <laughs> Let me see if we can for, <laughs> find a good passage about in the, in the Puddles and, chapter. And by here. the way, there are a bunch um, of Larrys here. I think you have Thin Larry and... and uh, yeah, yeah, yes, and... Uh, um, 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 yeah, so we have this, this underground newspaper. Uh, uh, and, and, of course, we call it an underground newspaper because we were very self-dramatizing is another good name for the... Um, uh, um, for the for the baby boom, uh, is that 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 underground news? The original underground newspaper was uh, was to oppose the Nazis and occupied France, and that wasn't gonna you know I mean <laughs> that was hardly the, the the kind of oppression that we were under. Um, the um, uh, uh, you know we might get arrested, but it would be for 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 small amounts of drugs. Um, and uh, uh, not uh, not by the Gestapo, uh, and we would not be marched off and shot. We might be, you know, given um, a suspended sentence of six weeks or something like that. Um, and I'm trying to find a, a, a part of this that that that, uh, that 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 sums this up. Um, the um, well, here, let's try this. Um, the um, we're sitting around in the in this underground newspaper office, and our office got invaded, not by the police, but by people who thought they were uh, more radical than we were. I think I'll just tell the story rather than try to read it from the book. Yeah, it's it's I a mean, good it's a good one, good we, story. 
there was a a group of of uh, you know puddles was kind of like a good natured hippy dippy um you know crush the state while keeping a smile on your face kind of underground newspaper our main thing was we would run comics from the by by gilbert shelton the fabulous furry freak brothers and we would do a lot of waterbed testing you know and uh, and reports on uh, consumer reports on bongs and things like that so one night we're standing around in the office and the door slams open and in comes this group of kids who really think that they're radical much and they were not radical enough, and they called themselves, and this is the honest to gosh truth, they called themselves the Balto Kong. We're in Baltimore, and they're the Balto Kong, as in Viet Cong. With a straight face, they called themselves the Balto Kong. And they take over our office and say, we're, We are liberating this office in the name of the people. And we kind of tried to explain to them, Well, okay, but you got to understand that this office consists of like this row house we're renting where we're about three months behind on the rent and about a $10,000 debt to like somebody's uncle who helped us start this uh, and uh, a couple of typewriters and, you know, come right down to it. You're welcome, you know, liberate away. But that wasn't sufficient for them. They, they had to put us through consciousness raising and they, they sat us down in the middle of a circle of them and they had, they, they had like sticks and knives and, <clears throat> Excuse me, <clears throat> I'm a little colder, and and we were suitably frightened by all this, and they sat us down and yelled at us for hours about how we were insufficiently radical and how we should be like you know fighting the state you know and we should be joining the weather underground or whatever it was you know, and I don't know how long this would have gone on. Um, uh, liberation in the name of the people. If a couple of members of the people hadn't stopped by. There were these two kids. We were in a, we were, the office was in a black neighborhood in Baltimore. And there were these two high school kids who used to hang around the office, two very nice guys. One was Philip and Levon, I think their, na- their names were. And the reason they would hang around our office was that they were both English majors. They were honor, honors English majors at the, at the local high school. And they wanted our newspaper to print their poetry. Well, to be frank, they're, you know, they were 18, their poetry, 17, 18, their poetry was much what 17 or 18-year-old poetry is. But anyway, they were really nice guys, and, and, and we liked them. And so they would stop by every now and then and try and get us to publish a poem. So they just happened to stop by in the middle of all of this, uh, of our consciousness being raised. And Philip and Levon were big guys, and, 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 and like I say, you know, they were English honors students, but... But they were both big guys, and they were both wearing that currently fashion, fashionable Huey Newton leather coat sort of look. And I think it was Philip goes, he sees this going on, he goes, what the, what the heck's going on here? And the Balto Kong got up and ran out of the office, scared <laughs> to death of two actual members of the people. And I am glad to say that our uh, little uh, underground newspaper thereafter published all of Philip and Levon's poetry. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that my favorite passage in there is you, you had a, a girl named Windflower living there. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. And the thing was, that, yes, I had a girlfriend named Windflower, and uh, Windflower um, actually during the consciousness raising she got converted, and so when the Balto Kong left, she left with them. <laughs> and I'm going, to, you know, what the heck? 
And about three weeks later, the Baltocon came back. And uh, it was quite a fracas. Um, but anyway, they come back, and, uh, you know, we're scared to death. And there's Windflower standing at the front of them going, I came back to get my ironing board. <laughs> and and she... Windflower was a, was a young lady who wore nothing. And I mean nothing um, except a rumpled muumu. And what on earth she was doing with an ironing board, I have no idea. But while we were standing there terrified of the Balto Kong, she marched upstairs, grabbed her ironing board and an iron, and marched back out again. And that was the last I ever saw of her. You also write, and you had a, a girl named Karen there as well. Well, uh, yes, you, I was. Uh, yeah, it was the '60s, okay? Yeah. Karen was my had been my high school girlfriend, and Karen had actually been at Kent State when the students were were shot, and she had been in that crowd, completely terrified, completely freaked out, and so she had come after after all the schools in Ohio were closed. She had come out to stay with me in Baltimore. Now suddenly, I have two girlfriends in the house. Now, I, as I say to the reader, before any sort of like uh, uh, filthy thoughts or um, or false memories of uh, '60s misbehavior coming into your head, uh, let me tell you that uh, the only thing that gives me any compassion whatsoever for Al Qaeda and the Taliban and such is that they've got four wives, and <laughs> their home life is probably just what they deserve. Uh, mine certainly was. Hmm. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You, you say that there's nothing SEAL Team 6 can do to them that's worse than what's going on in the house. So yeah, you're, exactly. You're lying, you're lying from the book. Yeah. Uh, so this is, you know, it sort of conjures up, this is your real experience, but it sort of conjures up, typifies at least the stereotype we have of, of the... Uh, well, i got to say, uh, I had the good luck, uh, if that was what it was, to be a stereotypical 60s um, um, person, you know. Of course, the great Amer majority of Americans my age were not um, having that 60s experience, although many of them re remember that they do. I, I was talking to somebody the other day about how many people do you think claim to have been at Woodstock, and we were figuring the, fi the figure is probably up around 30 million. Okay. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I actually did go through that 60s hippie phase, and I went through it, you know, as a kind of like semi-hick kid from Ohio and not exactly understanding what was going on and calling myself a communist without ever having read any Karl Marx. And so I think I, I typified a, a, a side of that um, that uh, is probably best forgotten. What, what do you think it is, though, that, you know, everybody, 30 million people, you know, made-up figure, claim to be at Woodstock? Yeah. The, the, you know, people in your generation, a lot of people want to want to claim that, want to own that. Uh, they do. And, you know, it was because, uh, as I said before, like, it's things have been more fun since the baby boom took over. And all that 60s stuff was a lot of fun. Now, it was a lot of fun that you wouldn't care to go through again, you know, as an adult. And it wasn't always, like, uh, enjoyable fun. There's a difference between fun and pleasure. There's a difference between fun and, 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 and a worthwhile experience. But it was quite exciting. It was, you know, sort of socio, sociological bungee jumping. And, uh, and we remember it fondly, uh, as people tend to do remember things fondly, even when they probably shouldn't. Um, and sure, I think we do. I don't think we want to go back there, you know. 
But I was, you know, thinking uh, 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 about this, like, you know, how badly we behaved and what moronic ideas we had and how obnoxious we were about them. Um, Even when we were right, I mean, I think we were right about the war in Vietnam, but we were still obnoxious. And um, and then I was thinking, and now now Bill Ayers and Bernadette Dorn, head of the Weather Underground, they're like passing acquaintances of – the president of the United States. And even though I'm conservative, in fact, I'm a Republican, that doesn't make me mad. That sort of makes me say, what a country. Mm, what yeah. a country. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can see where you're coming from on that. Yeah. Uh, how do you, uh, I think I've, even though technically I'm part of the, the baby boom generation, I, I, I don't feel like it. I guess I'm kind of no, stuck I think in between. That, that, that I'm in the you, tail end, you know. Um, what I think of as the freshman class of the of the baby boom um, don't identify with it so strongly. But then again, you do. You just don't. You kind of take all the the baby boom world as a kind of a given, as a great. It's, it's the sea you swim in. Yeah, and and that's what, that's it was going to be my question. Um, I sometimes, and I, I think I'm not alone in this. Have kind of resented uh, the fact that I, I feel like the, the the taste, at least perceived by advertisers, of of the baby boob generation because it's so large, um, yeah. or, or sort of rammed down my throat. I, you know, I get tired of of hearing about the Beatles, 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 Beatles. You know, and it, yeah. Et I, I, look, I get tired of hearing about the Beatles. And you want to know something about the Beatles? I should have. I didn't. I don't think I really put this in the book, and I should have. Was that um, when when we my, my guy friends and I were about fifteen years old. We are over at my house, sneaking a beer and watching the Ed Sullivan show when the Beatles appeared. And you know how we felt about the Beatles? We liked the Beatles' music, okay. Uh, I mean, it was better than what was, you know, currently on the AM radio. But we felt kind of with all those girls screaming in the audience, we sort of felt like we were looking at Justin Bieber. (laughs) We're going, oh my gosh. This is really stupid. So it's only in hindsight, you know, that the Beatles become like such a fabulous thing. If you actually remember, if you were 15, 16 years old, when they really arrived, they were a little embarrassing. I mean, they had these stupid haircuts, you know, they wore these stupid clothes, all these stupid girls were screaming. It was the Justin Bieber of their day, although I got to say they turned out, at least so far, to have have lived somewhat more worthy lives than um, Justin yeah, and a Poor couple. Guy. Yeah, a couple have been been knighted. You know, maybe. Yes, just, right. I don't think Justin's going to get knighted. Yeah, <laughs> he'll 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 have to uh, have to clean up his act a little bit. Uh, yeah, he'll have to be out on parole at least. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how you uh, how do you explain baby boomers to the millennials or or younger? I, I think you have younger kids. Well, I do. Yeah, but in one sense, we don't need explanation because they live in the baby boom world, as I said, and, and I think one of the, the problems that you have, and, it, and this includes Generation X and the, and the Generation Y and the Millennials and so on, is that because the baby boom was front-loaded, because the largest number of baby boomers were born in the late 40s and early 50s, you really do feel that this thing is being jammed down your throat, you know, and, and of course, in, in a way, like uh, just in a, in a in a societal way, we are that lump that keeps going down the python, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, frankly, we're it's a long way from the python tail yet. You guys are going to have to put up with this for quite a while. So uh, I, I don't think we need much much, much explaining. 
um, uh, you know, probably what we need is some excusing. You know, I, I try and tell younger people, you know, I know you're going to go broke from Social Security and from Medicare because of us, but, um, you know, we didn't. Uh, it wasn't the baby boom that created these two programs. You know, that was FDR with Social Security and LBJ, not a person we were in love with, with, with Medicare. And they, you know, and they, they, they created these programs um, that um, uh, uh, they seem to create these programs with absolutely no sense of the demographic trends that would hit these programs. I mean, Social Security and Medicare all work fine if everybody uh, politely dies at 67 and a half, you know. Mm. Yeah, and people but, are li- living longer. They are, and, yeah. and, and they knew that even when Social Security was put in place. They, they had enough demographic information, and but by the time Medicare comes along, they, they really had a lot of statistical information. They knew Americans were living longer. They knew medical costs were going up. They knew medical procedures were becoming more expensive. Things like open-heart surgery, the heart-lung machine, had been invented by that time. They could see this coming. And typical of politicians from all times and places and all uh, 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 persuasions, left and right, they didn't care. They didn't care. It was what. Let's hey, let's let's give something nice to old people. Old people vote a lot. You know? mm-hmm. Sure, fine. You know, <laughs> we're talking with P.J. O'Rourke, a political satirist, a wait, wait, don't tell me panelist, author of uh, several books, latest of which is The Baby Boom: How It Got That Way, and It Wasn't My Fault, and I'll Never Do It Again. Uh, it's uh, just out. And uh, we have another five minutes or so left in this conversation. The way to reach us is 1-800-826-1495, or the email is upraxis at uh, gmail.com. Uh, what do you think the—you've talked about the economic effects. Uh, this, this bulge in the python is, is uh, going to cost the nation a lot of money. Uh, what are some of the other effects, do you think, from this, uh, this big generation coming through? Well, I, we're, we're definitely going to be um, uh, uh, living, or I think we are already, living in a country that is more oriented to the needs of the oldest part uh, of, uh, of the population. And traditionally, countries have been most oriented toward the young and upcoming or the most productive or the soon-to-be most productive uh, group of people, and we are going to go through a period here of being focused on the less and less productive members of our society. And I think it's going to leave um, uh, the following generations with a lot of resentment um, 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 toward the baby boom. Um, and, and I guess the only thing I can say, you know, to excuse that is, you know, it can't be undone now, is that we um, we did leave a much nicer world behind. I mean, once the baby boom takes over, uh, uh, the, the, the world does become, America does become a much nicer place. I mean, we are a generation, for all our faults, we are a generation who wants to give the world a hug and a drug. You know, and we're, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're not mean-spirited people, and we're not intolerant people. We're not prejudiced people. Um, we've made a lot of mistakes, but we're, you know, I suppose good at heart is also is the ultimate uh, refuge of scoundrels, but mm. um, still, I would say that we are. 
Having got through this exercise, just have a couple minutes left. Uh, you know, looking back uh, in a personal way, you, you know, you did the, the statistics and everything as as well. But on the personal level, what what have you come up with? Looking at you know, as a baby boomer uh, now, re- now reflecting. Well, I just you know feel mostly ashamed of myself. Really, I mean, I here I was part of a generation of ordinary middle class kids, lower middle class, really. Um, uh, you know, one of the first people in my family ever to go to college, and um, I, 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 I was so cavalier about the opportunities that were, were given to me, uh, and, 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 and lazy and, and, uh, and self-indulgent, you know, and if I had it to all do over again, uh, I would do it more carefully. Uh, I would do it with a, a better will and a, a little better sense. But you know you you can't change the I, I if I'd done that I would have missed a lot of fun wouldn't I and mm-hmm. isn't fun what life is supposed to be about well, I yeah. guess yeah certainly uh, you uh, I wonder how your parenting is affected you you said your mother um, <clears throat> having been raised by the you know a little more stricter sit up straight eat your peas and carrots uh, she didn't you know she she promised she was never gonna make you eat the the liver and whatever and and she kept that promise. My mom, yes, absolutely, who was raised in, in a strict family, had sworn to herself as a kid that, among other things, she would never make her children eat something they hated. And she kept that promise. We were not forced to eat lima beans or liver or any of the other things that kids hate. Uh, my sisters and I are picky eaters to this day, but, um, you know, in the America of 2014, being a picky eater is probably not such a bad thing. Uh, there was already a much more permissive atmosphere with the um, uh, with the greatest generation, and compared to how their parents had acted. And, and funnily enough, though, the baby boom generation turned out to be helicopter parents. We turned out to be wildly cautious about all the things that our kids did, and and and, and terribly organized about. You know, we didn't just turn them out, throw them out of the house, and and. Somebody said that it's like we're helicopter parents. Our parents were drone parents, you know, mm-hmm. a little further away, a little mm-hmm. more likely to whack. Um, <laughs> and the reason I think for that is that we are the generation that never grew up. And that means when we look into kids' eyes, we know exactly what they're thinking. Mm, yeah, yeah, there's an advantage there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so, of course, we're cautious parents. Just have a minute left. Uh, I'll just have you give a quick response to this email that we have. This is from Terry. She says, loving Access Utah today. She says, I agree that I wouldn't want to do the 60s and 70s over again uh, today, but uh, I wouldn't trade the experience of growing up in California during that time for anything. Love the Beatles then and now, she says. (laughs) See, she's a girl. (laughs) No, I like the Beatles myself. And, And she's right. You know, it's one of those things where you wouldn't trade the experience, even though you wouldn't want to go through it again. It was an absolutely amazing experience and an amazing period uh, in American history. And for once, it was an amazing period in American history that wasn't predominantly marked with gross suffering, like the amazing period of the Great Depression, amazing period of the World Wars, amazing period of the Civil Wars. I mean, not that there wasn't some suffering in the 60s, but it wasn't the hallmark of the era. We'll leave it there. Uh, P.J. O'Rourke has been our guest, political satirist, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me panelist. His latest book is The Baby Boom. It's uh, it's out now. Uh, Pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope you got something out of that. Oh, definitely did. Uh, And uh, for producers uh, Katie Swain and Bennett Purser, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today. Commentator Thad Box. 
Fifty years ago, President Lyndon Baines Johnson declared war on poverty. National Public Radio plans to do a series of stories this year on how well that war has been fought and what victories were won. I sat glued to the radio as President Johnson made that declaration. My heart was filled with pride and my bosom filled with hope. My grandpa had been neighbors to the Johnsons as Lyndon grew up. He was a poor kid who wore hand-me-down clothes his mama patched. He'd gone to Southwest Texas State Teachers College and taught at an elementary school where he combed last from his students' hair. He had been our congressman. He sponsored the government dam building jobs that my father and uncles used to make money. He made electricity available to our farm. He knew what poverty was about, and he was a fighter. We could win that war. But Lyndon got messed up in that old Asian war. When one of my favorite students, Captain Gerald Brown, was killed in Vietnam, I became so angry with Lyndon I could not say his name for years. In my mind, he had neglected the war on poverty and killed the best of our youth in another undeclared, unwinnable fight. I was in Kenya, camped up on Lake Turkana, working with drought-starved people when Lyndon died. The leading newspaper in Kenya put a black border around the front page and the headline said, Lyndon Johnson, the greatest champion of black people of any American president since Abraham Lincoln, died today. I had to reevaluate Lyndon and make my peace with him. A wise old uncle told me, Thad, you got to forgive Lyndon. He is raised like you were. When somebody spits on you, you got to whoop them. And sometimes that fight keeps you from taking care of the family. There's no doubt Lyndon Johnson did good things as president. His civil rights accomplishments alone made the world a better place. But I'm still mad at him because he let the Vietnam War distract him from the war on poverty, and he left unfinished business for the rest of us who remain. The gap between the rich and the poor widens. The war on poverty continues. My fellow Americans, it's up to us to fight that war. Call your congressman today and tell him to support raising the minimum wage to a living wage. This is Thad Box. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan.